Uh, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, I will try to reward you for sticking around for the afternoon with uh, a, a lively session. And um, I encourage you, if you have a quick question or need clarification, let's say, you know, raise your hand and I will we'll do that. We'll try not to get sidetracked and I will save some time for questions at the end. I have 50 minutes, right? So I'm going to do this so I can check the time. I forgot to do that. All right, um, financial disclosures, I have nothing to disclose. I asked if I could disclose anything else, and they said that wasn't necessary, so I'll move on. Um, here are the learning objectives. Um, these are what I hope you get out of this. You, some of you may get more out of it, and certainly don't limit yourself to these. Um, but these are what will be documented that you have learned today, so keep that in mind. And we will talk about this and hopefully hammer these issues home. Before I move on, um, how many of you would say you are a manual therapy provider or are very familiar with manual therapy? Okay, so about a third, a quarter of the room, so um, that's good to know. And, and for those of you who aren't, if you need clarification, uh, let me know because I am quite familiar with manual therapy um, and am also considered a manual therapy provider. So the first thing I thought I would do today is get everyone on the same page, and this is directly linked. Roger did a really nice job this morning of talking about the difference between biomedical and biopsychosocial models. Um, this is a little bit of that. I'm going to try to tie it into the evolution of manual therapy, too. Um, but since pain was first documented, and I always say we are contractually obligated to show this picture um, if we do a talk on pain, but since pain has been documented, um, there was a tight link with nociception. And that led to a whole bunch of nociceptive-driven theories, um, this being one of the first one, the famous Descartes picture, where fire causes a, a stimulus to the foot, and that's perceived in the brain as painful. Um, it really stayed that way for quite a while. People got a little more sophisticated with the study of nociception um, in the 1900s. And this is a really good article if you're interested in the history of how um, nociception and pain were studied. This is an article that we've come back to a lot in our research group. But one of the things that is nice about this article is it points out all the different ways nociception was studied. And it started with a specificity theory which suggests that there are certain receptors that can carry noxious information. And those, those receptors are active only when um, something potentially painful is uh, provoking them. Uh, that works for some things, but it doesn't explain everything. So we need another theory. So an intensity theory was proposed. Uh, the intensity theory suggests that almost all receptors have the potential now to carry painful messages. But it just depends on how hard or how intense they're activated. So this is, there's an innocuous range and then an oxious range, and it may depend on the frequency or the intensity of the stimulation. That works for some things, but it doesn't explain everything. So then people started to get more sophisticated and, and pattern theories came about and start, people started to realize that sometimes you could have activation of receptors or cells in one pattern, and all three would be activated, but in a different pattern. In this case, we'll keep it simple and say purple-red and orangish-yellow. And in that pattern, they're innocuous. But when that pattern changes, um, they have, the, again, the potential to suggest that there's 
pain. The most famous of this pattern theory is the gate control theory, and, and Roger already indicated this was a very influential um, theory on the field. I will point out it is only one of many different potentially pattern theories, but it was very popular. It was adapted and studied a lot and, and helped us um, advance the field. One of the things that was very interesting is when people started studying nociception, I think they also began to realize that nociception and pain differed. And this is a really, really important lesson um, that we continue to learn more and more about, and some people are relearning that. Um, but when people started looking at other paradigms, um, noticed that pain, that nociception could be modulated, and that would influence pain reports. This is an example of descending inhibition, where if you have competing stimuli, um, you may have an increase in the pain threshold. People then started studying this in clinical populations and noticed sometimes some of the clinical populations that are consistent with chronic pain conditions had lower inhibitory capacities compared to healthy normals. This was a, an example where nociception and pain are differing. Um, another thing that helped distinguish the nociception and pain was these, the behavioral observations of pain. Um, Fordyce is really credited with starting this, and I love this quote uh, about how verbal and nonverbal behaviors are not only somewhat free to vary from each other, they in fact do vary from each other. So this sets the foundation for pain becoming a behavior. Not going to talk too much about pain behavior today, but I did want to acknowledge it because this is yet another example of how, how nociception and pain differ. The behavior can differ. And then um, central sensitization, which is this idea of having an original kind of area of injury, and the expression of that injury can be wider in receptor fields than intended, or than, um, than um, induced with the injury. And this has led to a lot of uh, progression in identifying central pain syndromes. And the wonderful term central sensitization, which we can talk about or not um, if people have questions about it. So what, what that um, hopefully catches everyone up on is this idea that when you are studying pain, um, it does start with nociception, but there is a difference between nociception and the individual experience. And more progressive contemporary models of pain look something like this. This is one of my favorites from Irene Tracy. And it captures all the different elements that can influence the pain experience. And it includes nociception and the modulation we still have the input. We have the injury that's occurring and the potential for peripheral sensitization. Um, and then we have the pain experience in cognitive, context, mood, chemical structure are all bordering that pain experience. So as you can see, um, the move from specificity and intensity to this pain experience, it's happened in about 80 years, maybe a little bit longer. Um, but I think this one is a little bit more on track. And as Roger already mentioned, we're not quite there. We understand a lot more of the things that are in play, but the dynamics between all these um, we're not um, quite definitive on yet. So that sets the stage for how I think about pain and how I'm going to talk about pain um, in this talk. So this is, this is the hands-on, hands-off part. Now we're transitioning to the title, which is always a good idea. Um, meanwhile, back at the ranch, manual therapy has been around about as long as the, and probably even longer, as some of the early descriptions of pain. Um, manual therapy, you can find it in 
depicted in all kinds of ancient civilizations. Um, these are some of the ones that I found when I uh, Googled the term. And originally, um, manual therapy was associated with bone setting and this idea that really it was used to fix fractures. And I think this is important because historically when something is fractured, there is an obvious structural deficit. The manual forces were used to improve that alignment for healing. And that alignment is really important in the healing of fracture. Um, that is, and that is in my, and I, it's not just mine, that is the, the, the foundation of manual therapy. What, had, what has happened over time, and, and this, has not, this isn't recent, this is, um, pr I don't know exactly when the transition occurred, but people started applying manual therapy for musculoskeletal pain. Um, the, the nice thing about musculoskeletal pain is you can find many, many, many different structural defaults if you start looking for them. Um, some of them are not as obvious as a fracture, um, but they're present. The, the downside is they may or may not have any relevance to the pain condition. And that's been well documented. So we have this model where manual therapy was linked to correcting alignment to heal. And this was the origin of manual therapy for musculoskeletal pain, that it was addressing some alignment, and that alignment had to be correct for it to heal. And in this, as I said, this is either you've heard of this before or extremely offensive to you, uh, depending on where you are and your uh, beliefs about manual therapy. But I will say, scientifically, it has been pretty well established that the, def the, the postural positional defaults that clinicians detect are not strongly linked to the pain condition. This does not mean manual therapy is not an effective modality. It just means it may work in a different way than bone setting. So what has happened is um, folks have started conceptualizing manual therapy in a different way. And really, the way this has been thought of differently is how manual therapy interacts with the nervous system. If you think of it, it had, manual therapy has always had a bone or a joint focus, but joints especially are rich with receptors, and those receptors are connected to the nervous system. And their stimulation may be a key ingredient to um, what, we, what our patients experience when um, they have relief. So this is an example of a conceptual model um, that we developed at the University of Florida to take a different look at manual therapy. Um, this was a little bit, this was a progression of Joel Picard is a chiropractor who did a lot of work, earlier work in nervous system responses for manual therapy, but kept it at a reflexive level. One of the things that we did in this model was take it beyond the reflexive level of what happens at the spinal cord and included all of the um, supraspinal structures that we now know are um, really integrally involved with the pain experience. It does seem appropriate, I just thought of this walking in, so excuse me for the ad lib, but it does seem appropriate to acknowledge that one of the co-authors on this paper was Don Price, and Don Price passed away, and we were very, very, and I don't know, Don Price is a, I don't know what's the best way to describe Ron, or Don, Roger, pioneer, like, legend, yeah, I mean, obviously, like I said, this is the not prepared part, which may not differ too much from the prepared part, but that's okay. But I just thought it was appropriate to acknowledge his role. We were very lucky to have him um, 
collaborating with us. Uh, we always said we were the dumb physical therapist in the room, and he, he was the really smart neuroscientist guy. Um, but he did push us to think about manual therapy in a way that we could explain it to him um, as to how it could impact the pain experience, and that resulted in a model like this. The other thing to take from this model is these two models um, were published within a year of each other, so they were being developed in series, but, or in parallel, excuse me, but they're basically the same thing. We still have the nociceptive modulation, um, but we're also bringing in the pain experience. So this is, in our mind, very consistent with a current conceptualization of pain. And what we've done is reduced the, the prior emphasis of manual therapy down into this box which says mechanical stimulus. So where are we now? Well, where we are now with manual therapy is, let's look at its impact on nociceptive input. When I say what spinal manipulative therapy does to nociception, I'm thinking of endpoints like reflexes, muscle activity, and perceptual ratings of controlled stimuli. So these are things that, if you, they're preclinical endpoints, they're not directly clinical endpoints, but we hope they're closely related to clinical endpoints. And essentially, there is consistent evidence that spinal manipulative therapy has favorable influence on these endpoints. There's many, um, several meta-analyses on these. Um, what is interesting, which we can talk about later if you guys think it's interesting, is there appears to be the same effects for healthier clinical populations. Um, spinal manipulative therapy is consistently better than comparators. Um, the one downside with this is the focus is often on immediate effects. So these are studies that are done in one session. The follow-up is usually right after or maybe a couple hours later, which is how those endpoints tend to work, too. So this is good news um, for the um, spinal manipulation and nociception. Here's an example of one meta-analysis that um, our group did. And we looked at folks that were clinical population. And you can see that um, A is the spinal manipulative therapy. There's not a, these studies are not highly powered, which is a problem. But they were powered enough when you combine them to just get past the, um, the no effect line with the 95% confidence interval. And then when you take people that are healthy and study their responses, um, you can see it's, it's, the combined uh, effects are eerily similar to those with the um, clinical effects. So um, that is not inconsistent with what others have reported. Um, this was one of the earlier meta-analyses um, on this topic. So when we move up to the individual experience, um, of course, things are going to change a little bit. Uh, the endpoints now I'm talking about are kind of what I consider classic trial endpoints of pain intensity, um, disability, and function. Often these are self-report um, in the literature. Uh, some people will use performance-based measures. And this, really, we have the debate. This is the debate. This is where the, the conflict is in the spinal manipulative literature. First of all, there's many, many, many reviews and meta-analyses. The, there, there was a joke I don't know if it's funny anymore or if it's even true, but there are, at one point, there were more meta-analyses than randomized trials in spinal manipulative therapy, which um, is a problem, right, because ideally it's the other way around. Um, 
what, what the, and I'm, I'm not, and, and actually people have done meta-analyses of the meta-analyses, which kind of ends, if you keep that going, you know, where it ends up. My qualitative summary of those is, in short term, you will see positive, small effects for spinal manipulative therapy. Longer term, those effects tend to disappear, and the comparator really matters in this. So if it's an active comparator, then the effects are smaller and they're more negligible. If the comparator is a weightless control or a minimal intervention, the effects tend to be larger. And this is that half full versus half empty debate, which I cleverly put there in a, the figure. So what um, this has led to differences in interpretation. And there was a really provocative paper in Spine a couple years ago. And um, I like this quote um, because I don't agree with it completely, but I think this is a strong viewpoint. Um, equivocal outcomes are a poor return for the investment. The error is perpetuated by the inadequacies of null hypothesis testing and SMT stakeholders. And, I, and basically, this, um, this was an, kind of an economic meta-analysis looking at if these effects are from random chance or due to natural history, and essentially this person concluded that more research is not needed in this area. And I like that because, I, A, I think more research is needed, but I also like that he very clearly stated that because I get tired of reading reviews that conclude that more research is needed um, because that seems like such a safe conclusion. So at this point, you know, I, I, have, I could end the talk, right? No, nothing more is done. And maybe if I had a magic ring, I could turn invisible, I'd put it on and disappear, and you guys could go have your Friday afternoon or evening in um, Vegas. But no, we have learning objectives to meet, right? So I wanted to highlight some priorities that I think are in a direct response to this idea that no more research is needed. And I will tell you, um, even though I'm speaking as a researcher, I tend to think of research that is going to impact practice. That's my ultimate goal. I started my career as a practitioner. So these, this is really research that I think will shape the practice of the future and will hopefully help identify how spinal manipulative therapy will help people in pain. That's the goal of all of this, as I understand it, is to help people have um, treatment options that are effective. So what's next? The first thing is movement-evoked pain. And this is a measurement issue. That's why I'm doing it first, because measurement is boring. Right? Anytime you can get Homer Simpson in there, you take, take the chance. It is a measurement issue, but it's seemingly an important one in pain. Typically, in a clinical trial, pain intensity is done closer to resting or spontaneous pain. We ask the, the person, what is your pain intensity on a 0 to 10 scale, or we have them rate it, and we qualify it with current, worst, best, um, we average those or we use one of those, but it's not necessarily a really specific condition. Current could mean, you know, they're sitting there right in front of you. If they're doing it at home, who knows what they're doing at, at home. Um, I don't have major issues with this. I think this type of scale is responsive and, and studies have shown that to change, but it's not specific. The, the contrast to this is activity-related or movement-evoked pain, and both of these terms are used, um, and that's why I'm using them. I, I consider them to be the same. And essentially, we're using the same scale, so it's not, um, 
it's not like it's a, a different scale, but we're making sure we're having the person rate something that is very specific. And clinicians, use, this is usually something that clinicians do. They want to know what type of pain um, they're having with a specific movement. But I can tell you, research-wise, this is not traditionally done in a standard manner in clinical trials. People are beginning to use this. So the difference between this is how do you rate your shoulder pain right now? This is we're going to have you do this pulley with 5% you know, of your body weight, and I want you to rate the pain that you have with this movement. And we can even standardize it further. I want you to rate it at the end. I want you to rate the highest amount of pain. But the point is we're going to have everyone rating a specific movement using the same scale. The reason this is believed to be important is there may be very different mechanisms and processing pathways. Um, and if you think of it, there may be very different modulatory demands between movement-evoked pain and the, the resting pain, the current pain. And also the context is very different. And I think that is something else that will translate nicely to clinical populations. Um, some people have a lot of trouble with movement pain. Um, but their resting pain is quite low, and, and other people, it's both of them are ongoing, and for other people, it's flipped. This helps us differentiate that. I, I can tell you my bias as a researcher is I always assume these would just be very highly correlated, and why do we need to measure both? Because it's giving us redundant information. But my, that attitude has changed in the last four or five years. One of the things that has helped that attitude change is from our own research. Um, we do an exercise-induced injury model to the shoulder, so we fatigue the shoulder. Um, a couple years ago, we did an analysis where we found psychological factors predicted their spontaneous pain rating. So when we, we do the protocol, and it, it hurts them for 3 to 15 days. So it's, it's a nice stimulus for, from that. It's safe, but it hurts them. It also causes them some upper extremity disability, um, so it's, it, it has some um, ecological validity. We ran some analyses in some of our psychological factors that we're interested in predicted spontaneous pain ratings. Um, I had an a inquisitive doctoral student who was interested in the movement of oak pain ratings, and I said, fine, go, you know, go look at those. I don't think you're going to find anything. And lo and behold, what we found was the psychological factors didn't predict these at all, um, but the baseline pain sensitivity measures did, which was very interesting because in a lot of analyses that we've done, these don't predict the spontaneous pain ratings strongly, um, but these do. So we had a little bit of a, a flip here. And this was something that suggested to us that we may be talking about different pain processing pathways or mechanisms. So why should you care? Um, one, one group that has learned this lesson the hard way but has corrected it is the TENS, the, the um, transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulation. Um, in 2009, you know, there's a pretty strong um, negative endorsement, non-endorsement of the use of TENS in chronic low back pain, um, that it was not effective, and that got a lot of, a lot of press. And there's, there's several different reasons if you talk to people who are advocates for TENS and who um, think TENS is effective. Part of it is the studies that were included in this review um, did not ensure fidelity of the TENS treatment, which I do think is important. Um, but another thing that came out was TENS seems to be quite effective for movement evoked pain and not nearly as effective for the spontaneous or the resting pain. And all the trials that were included in that um, guideline recommendation 
did, were spontaneous or resting pain. So there's a group in Iowa that has really taken this on, led by Kathleen Sluka, and has really done a nice job of showing when TENS is effective for movement-evoked pain. And in the same study, showing that it doesn't have as much of an impact on the spontaneous or resting pain. Um, the other thing that has come from this is that the TENS seems to be most effective when it's on and immediately after. It doesn't have a lasting or a cumulative effect, which is, a, is counter to how I was trained that TENS would work, that it would have a lasting effect. But again, I love Kathleen's analogy of if it's ibuprofen, any medicine that's on board, there is a therapeutic window of, uh, of value, and then when it's not anymore, you don't expect to have pain relief. And that is how people are starting to think of TENS. And if you've been paying attention, you know, TENS is now available over the counter, and people are using it, I think, in more of that way, where it's on modulating the pain while you're having activity. Um, and I think that may be a more effective way to use it. So one of the priorities is for spinal manipulative therapy, which has the same issues with pain relief in their meta-analyses. When you look at clinical populations, small, small effects, is differentiating whether spinal manipulative therapy has a stronger impact on movement-evoked pain. Anecdotally, clinicians will tell you that it does, um, but this needs to be um, better defined in the trials. And we can learn a lot from the TENS folks in, in this particular realm. The next part is uh, dose responders. This is, this is something that's very interesting, and I'm going to look at both aspects, and I'm going to use this kind of seesaw analogy, because what has happened with manual therapy is people have tried to focus on which dose to use, and then when that doesn't work, they try to focus on, okay, well, who is going to respond optimally from these treatments? And what is nice or frustrating is, as you'll see at the end, is, is neither of these are really working. So the manual therapy literature is sorely lacking in dose response studies. Dosages in clinical trials are typically arbitrarily determined. I can say that because we've done these, and, and this is how we do it. We pick a dose that we think matches what is done clinically. We apply it in a standard fashion, and then we run the trial. And this greatly limits the ability to discern dose-response effects of spinal manipulation. We don't have these nice curves that other therapeutic areas have. One of the best studies on this was, done, um, in two, was reported in 2014, and they looked at four different dosing paradigms for chronic back pain. Um, they followed them up for a year, and they had 0, 6, 12, and 18 sessions. This is how the dosage was determined, the number of sessions which depending on your experience with dosing is maybe a very crude way to measure it, but that's how it's measured in, in um, manipulation. The primary findings were at 12 weeks, the greatest difference from no control was at 12 sessions. At 24 weeks, everyone looked essentially the same. And these are for pain and functional measures. And at, 50, at a year, the greatest difference was between 18 sessions and the control. So the number, of, this is their conclusions, the number of spinal manipulation visits had modest effects. Overall, 12 visits yielded the most favorable results, but was not well distinguished from other dose levels. And remember, one of those dose levels was zero. So this, okay, so if there's not a dose, maybe some people will respond to it and some people won't. 
And there's a nice clinical prediction rule story in lumbar spinal manipulation. Um, I don't have time to go through with it all. But essentially, it's this idea that you can a priori get some clinical characteristics, there's five of them, that pr predict who's going to respond optimally to a spinal manipulation dose. Um, this was identified in a derivation study. Then it was actually validated in a, a well-done randomized trial. And then, like all things um, that are validated, people started doing secondary analyses and found that it didn't work in other clinical cohorts. Um, and then there was another validation attempt that didn't work. Or this one worked a little bit. And then the most recent one that was reported in JAMA um, just last year, it, the clinical prediction wor rule worked at the four-week follow-up, and that was the only time. We'll skip this different one. So basically, where we're left with with the responders is we go back in the other direction and say, is it the dosage? Or there's another way we can look at responders, and that is look at their immediate response. So instead of gathering their clinical characteristics and having a risk prediction essentially for a good outcome, we can just try one session. It's a low risk type of treatment. And if they respond well, then continue with the therapy. Does that make sense to everyone? You're monitoring their change. Um, this sounds great. We know um, including initial response as part of a longer-term response makes sense. Um, it makes sense clinically. It also tends to make sense statistically. Other people, other professions do this. It's not uncommon for people to do pharmaceutical trials to see what the response is, to see if pain relief, and then change the dose or continue with the same dose. So there's, there are some models for this. But overall, for manual therapy, the results have been disappointing. Um, we have looked at this in our trials, and we find weak to no associations for their immediate change and their eventual clinical outcomes. We've also looked at between session changes, and same thing, weak, weak to moderate for this one. And to give you an idea of what these data look like, first of all, these are small trials, um, but there are not, there's not a clear pattern here for how the response should be. Those dots should be in two quadrants, um, suggesting that people who change within the session have a good outcome, people who don't have a bad outcome. And instead, what we see is kind of a, um, a scatter plot of without a slope um, and without um, specificity to any two quadrants. <clears throat> so what, one of the things to better understand this, and you'll have to entertain me because I, I, I like this, but I, it, 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 it will say the same thing that this, the previous slide did, but in colors, is we wanted to look at this more at an individual level to see what was going on, because a lot of these studies just look at one session. So we, we did a study, and we actually had three sessions of manual therapy, and we wanted to get an idea, are people responding all three, one of those? And that's what led to this. And I've been told this is a horrible slide, but I'm stubborn, um, and I'm going to try to explain it to you. So yellow means no change. So if you think of this, someone who received an intervention, um, there was an assessment before and after the intervention, and yellow is no change. So what do you think green is? 
yeah, they changed favorably, so they're having less pain or less pain sensitivity. Red is, they got worse. And what's the gray? What? No, yellow's no change, so what's the gray? Yeah, they didn't show up for that. So this, this means we didn't make it up is what, what, I'm tell, that, what this is. So the, the gray is they didn't show up, which happens everywhere. So what we, um, what we did then, and, and each column is a session for one patient. So one patient goes across, and then this is three sessions. And I have it split by the folks that improved clinically and the folks that didn't improve clinically at three months. And we, you'll see we used an MCID. So there's a couple of things you noticed here, we noticed. Um, there does seem to be some within subject pattern. Very few positive responses are isolated. If you have one, it's likely, if you see green on a, on a row, you tend to see more than one green. There's a whole bunch of neutral responses. Um, part of this is we used a fairly stringent change criteria, we, but we, we wanted to be stringent because we're already fishing. We didn't want to really, really, really be fishing. Um, and then I'm not sure what that last one means. I tried to figure that out on the plane. So maybe someone out there can figure it out, but we're just going to move and, and move on. So which group do you think received the largest amount of pain? The, the taller one or the shorter one? This is in a trial. Everyone um, received either manual therapy at the shoulder or the neck, and the comparison group was a home exercise program. There's no way to know. You just have to guess. Do you think a lot of noise means that they changed, or do you think the more stable group means that they changed? And remember, this is three consecutive sessions of did they respond to the treatment, which is what all clinicians are doing, hopefully. They're monitoring what's going on. I'll give you the benefit of the doubt, because I teach, I used to teach a lot for the living, so I know what the expectation is for interaction on a Friday afternoon. Um, it's low, by the way. This is the group that exceeded one minimally detective change in pain intensity, and I it's at four weeks. We also had three-month data. Yes? We had two providers. They both were licensed, and um, one was a chiropractor, one was a physical therapist. And we didn't look at it at that level just because we had so few patients and, and subjects. And sometimes they both treated the same person depending on the schedule. Good question, though. All right, so then we reshuffled the deck. This is the same group of subjects. We reshuffled the deck. Now can you guess which one had the manual therapy and which one had the home exercise? Any guesses? That one? Yes. So the, the longer one had manual therapy. And interestingly, remember, the overall response rate is pretty low because of all the yellow. But it looks like the manual therapy response rate was about double what the home exercise response rate was. And this is a change, any, a change in their pain sensitivity. 
But what is interesting is, is it only green that you're seeing there? No, the manual therapy also pushed some people in the other direction where they were more pain sensitive beyond measurement error. We included that in the response rate because we wanted to look and just see if there's any evidence of a change. We already know that that change isn't related to the clinical outcomes, right? So we wanted to see, well, is there something going on with receiving a hands-on treatment versus a, a more um, a home exercise instruction? Yes? Yes to the home exercise program. There was a standard home exercise program. The manual therapy is two differently randomly signed group. One was directed to the cervical spine. One was directed to the shoulder. These were patients with shoulder pain, which I probably should have mentioned earlier. In the primary analysis, we didn't find any difference between shoulder applied and cervical applied manual therapy. So we kept them together in this, in this analysis. So, when you start looking at the individual response, the immediate change is not correlated to longer-term clinical outcomes. But there are some interesting response patterns. Um, people tend to look at these in correlations. Maybe there's something nonlinear going on that someone with a larger sample and different modeling techniques can figure out. The other option is that maybe with manual therapy, all we are noticing when we reassess someone and ask them if they're feeling better is that there's a change in their pain sensitivity from when we first saw them. And what's interesting, and these, these data suggest it can be in either direction. It would be a better story if that change in pain sensitivity was linked to their clinical outcomes. All right, so that's kind of where we are with the dose responder. And really, this is a, this is a big sticking point. Um, studies need to be designed that look at both of these much better than that have been done in the past. Otherwise, we aren't going to make any progress on tailored manual therapy approaches. We're not going to know what is the right dose for that person, or is this person likely to um, respond favorably. And this is going to, I think, this is not going to be solved by doing traditional randomized trials that have been done in the past. This is going to take different designs. So what is next? Um, as we all know, and I think it's been well discussed in um, this conference and outside of this conference, um, this picture has been changed. And pain is not only an individual experience, there's social responses um, to it. What we're, and this is the, what I have, and others are calling the impact era. Um, I think this era really started with the IOM report in 2011, making people aware of the public health implications. And it's been accelerated recently with um, the CDC report and the news on opioids. Um, but these are some of the quotes. Um, you know, pain is a major driver for visits to physicians. It's a burden on society. And relieving it should be a national priority. And here's the, the things that are really driving this impact era, especially recently. And of course, you know, non-pharmacological options are really high, of high interest right now. And manual therapy is one of those that has, I think, high potential. So priority three is to ensure manual therapy practice and research is in alignment, and that's a clever pun for those of you that are manual therapy friends, um, with impact era for managing musculoskeletal pain. 
I can tell you most manual therapy is not taught um, at this type of level. It's still taught in a very biomechanical, structural way, which is not at all consistent with the, what the impact era is calling for, for pain. So the issues to confront, and this is, this is um, more directed towards maybe the providers or the people that are familiar with the providers, is we do overestimate manual therapy's effects as providers who do, we, we do tend to look at the glass as half full. Um, I, I've already mentioned there is an over-reliance on biomechanical models for teaching manual therapy. Um, I know this, especially in physical therapy curriculum, that's what I'm most familiar with. My chiropractic colleagues tell me it's the same in, um, in that realm. There's tremendous variability in the delivery of manual therapy, which is nothing new, but um, this is, has big implications for um, chronic pain. And I think the other thing that needs to change with manual therapy is we need to design studies that answer these questions. It does, so does someone who have chronic pain, does someone with acute pain who receives manual therapy, is that linked to decreased chance of developing chronic pain conditions? Even if the episode may be resolved the same way as a comparator treatment, is there something different about manual therapy or seeing a manual therapy provider that limits the development of chronic pain? So many of these studies have been focused on episodic recovery, not what happens further downstream. And then for patients with chronic pain, really, it is, is this um, a lesser evil? Um, it's probably not any more or less effective than other non-pharmacological options, but does it keep people away from unnecessary invasive um, procedures or higher risk profile treatment options? Um, and that is something that has to be addressed with manual therapy studies. So I just cherry-pick two studies that I think indicate people are thinking of, man, of this impact era. And one of these is, this is a smaller study. I know there's a, the, the larger study will be reported later in the year. But looking at manual therapy or booster sessions in addition to exercise. So not looking at manual therapy alone. And here we have 12 consecutive exercise sessions, exercise sessions over a year, so in a booster model. Exercise with manual therapy, booster with manual therapy. And in this smaller trial, these were the two more effective conditions, either doing exercise over a year or having a concentrated exercise sessions with manual therapy. Um, the other conditions were not as effective. Um, to me, this is, this, is, this is more telling than some of the previous trials. This study may not be included in a meta-analysis of manual therapy because it is tainted with exercise. The other thing um, that has, has become of interest, especially when you look at the um, keeping people away from unnecessary risky procedures, is the timing. And this is analysis we did in the military. And basically, this shows you we started with 800,000 um, and excluded some people. The 800,000 people with low back pain in the military excluded some people and had 750,000 people that were included in the analysis. <clears throat> and if they received early care, and what is interesting is whether it was adherent or non-adherent, 
it was protective of having advanced imaging, injections, surgery, and opioid use. The reference group for this was delayed non-adherent treatment. We couldn't um, tell you exactly who got manual therapy in this type of analysis, but it suggests early treatment is, the early adherent is a little bit better. The non-adherent though, if it's done early, is still better than delaying it. And you can see all of those are protective of some of the things that seem to cause problems with low back pain. So we're nearing the end, finally. Um, so in looking at this statement, which I, I, again, I, I was definitely motivated by this statement, um, there is some truth in that statement. We need approaches that integrate that transformed understanding of pain. Can't keep doing the same studies um, that look at manual therapy in a very traditional manner. And they also have to match with how healthcare will be delivered. That booster study, I think, was a great example. And instead of worrying about whether which type of manual therapy you're using, studies that look at the timing of the care could be very, very valuable. And these will help inform um, progressive practice in this area. So just to review, you know, movement evoked pain, I think, is a potentially important endpoint. Get some balance on the dose versus responder instead of only looking at one of those. And then getting um, aligned with this impact era. I think this one is really important um, for providers who want to continue with, with uh, manual therapy. So these are my priorities. Um, and I, as I mentioned, especially in the last three or four months, um, this is, there's a lot of data on this particular non-pharmacological option. Um, the, the last thing we need are people recreating the wheel and, and doing studies that are going to perpetuate what we already know. Um, what we need are, are some things to move, move this along and, like I said, really get better information on who's going to benefit and how they're going to benefit from this. So that <clears throat> is that. I think there's time for questions if people have them, but thank you. Are there any questions? Yes. Right. Yeah, so, I mean, that's a good question, and there's a couple ways we've looked at this. One is, in a trial, we do try to standardize so the people that are providing the treatment are using the same. If we're not manipulating the message, which we have done some studies where we're manipulating the message, we give kind of a, a, a positive, you know, we expect you to benefit from this. Because clinically, I don't think anyone says, you know, I'm kind of 50-50, but we're going to do this anyways. And it, oh, so we, we actually, we, we shortcut that explanation a lot and just say, we think this, this procedure is going to help relieve your pain. And we really don't get into the why with that. Yeah, and, and actually, you know, I agree with you, and I know there's some qualitative work on 
there are some people that will accept and there's other people that are always going to want to have the diagnosis or the reason. And I think that is an important issue clinically. And maybe the folks that we're getting that are willing to provide informed consent, you know, that's, that's not this, every person who comes in the clinic. Maybe that person is a little more understanding or maybe they view the informed consent as part of that process. Um, but in, in educating our students, we have definitely taken a less is more type of approach. But for people who really want an underlying explanation, we do try to use that model and talk about different ways that this can modulate pain and that we don't need to know exactly what's going on biomechanically. Right. Right. But you can still do it. I think the, the link is the, the fix, like what is being fixed. Right. Right. Because the other thing that has happened, especially with back pain, is, and, you know, is the labeling also has a negative effect. When, when there's something that needs to be fixed, there's a negative, you know, when, and, and they've done several studies. If you give someone a diagnosis, um, their outcomes sometimes are worse. Um, or if people know what their imaging findings are, their outcomes are, if they're at, the outcomes tend to be the same, but their like their health beliefs are worse because you've you've made them sick. Any other questions? We have done studies where we did actually alter what we told people, and it actually does impact their response, which is kind of interesting. Which suggests there's a super spine, you know, there is a super spinal component to it. There probably are. I don't delve into that too much. We, we've actually started working with some chiropractors, and one of the things we agreed is we're not going to do cross-profession comparisons because there's also differences in who presents to those clinics. What seems to impact is the provider's beliefs in the technique, which is this equipoise term. So I think what may matter more than the provider is the provider who is really gung-ho about that technique gets better outcomes because that transfers somehow probably verbally and non-verbally to the patient. And it may be, you know, I think that explanation of what's wrong and what I'm going to fix is also a great way to build therapeutic alliance. And that also we know enhances. So that time that typically is spent saying, you know, you're, you're out of alignment and all those measurements that you're doing, can also, that, that, uh, that is also developing therapeutic alliance. So I think you don't, want to, you don't want to take that shortcut explanation at the risk. You know, there are other ways to develop the therapeutic alliance that are still very important. 